Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. If you listen to this before Thursday evening, July 20th, you probably still have time to grab the last handful of tickets that are available for our live show in the Sugar Club. We will be sitting down with the HSC whistleblower Shane Core and be joined by Roman and Owen from the Ditch, as well as a live shrapnel Lost an implementation crossover where, where Emma D'Souza and Sam McElwain will discuss the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on and what the state of play is right now in Northern Ireland politics. It'll be a brilliant evening and we'd love to see lots of you there. The tickets are available on eventbrite.ie. Grab them now. The link is in the bottom of the podcast you're listening to now. If you're not coming along but you like what we do, please join us. Please support us. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone once a month and it keeps these mics on and it gives you access to all sorts of extras including podcasts that we did this week alone with a group of doctors who talked about their experience of the housing crisis and how it's impacting their ability to do to deliver care in the health service. There's also Kevin Cunningham, the man behind Ireland Thinks on political polling in Ireland and a bit of a debate on whether it's editorialised or just stylized. And that's without the podcast with Holly Cairns and Brendan Ogle that are all available for our patrons on patreon.com forward slash tortoise Join us for a month, see what you think. We always say it's more than a podcast platform, it's activism. And think, and you can think of this as the easiest bit of activism you do every month. Patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm going to stop rabbiting on now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam McElwain, and I'm joined, as ever, by my trusty foil, my left hand, my other half on the podcast, uh, Gareth Mulvana. How you doing, Gareth? Not too bad, Sam. It's been a long time, and thanks for putting me on the left. Well, yeah, is, is it not left-footers and right-footers? Is that what we'll go with that? Oh, is it, that's with? what. Yeah, it's not political ideology it's religious denomination today oh, well, I'm, I'm definitely not in the right for that one <laughs> we'll, too, we'll be two left feet then we'll just go around in circles um yeah it's good to be back we've we've had a bit of a sabbatical and probably been a bit longer than we expected it to be but it's been a busy time personally for i think both of us so we didn't feel beholden and we didn't want to rush it and we didn't want to do it ad hoc we wanted to do what we did last year and structure it so yeah mm-hmm. glad to be back glad to be talking on air um, and it's 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 a nice nice feeling again. Yeah, absolutely. Good to flex the uh, podcast muscles. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been keeping the sort of my hand in the game with the, the guys uh, in, in the tortoise shack down in the echo chamber, um, and with Emma on another podcast. So I've, I've sort of kept my hand in, so I know what I'm doing slightly. Um, but yeah, it's it's good to be back in our own in our own skin again. Yeah, absolutely, and you know. It has been a not difficult isn't really the word, but it's been a sort of overextended sabbatical, as you, as you quite rightly allude to. Um, you know, we've had things going on in our personal lives as everybody does, and I think both of us decided that we didn't just want to rush stuff out for the sake of it. Um, I know people had been in touch asking, was there going to be a second series of shrapnel? And you know, that is the reason why we're doing this. It's to sort of uh, link in with people again, let them know we're still here, and sort of do a soft launch for season two. Yeah, I think also for me personally, it's sort of that kick up the backside as well. Now, now I'm committed. You know, now I've now I've jumped fully back in, so we we have to go. It's not a case of we'll do it when we're ready. It's 
we've put a, put a marker down now. We, we need to be doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, maybe to kick things off, went on Twitter today to ask if people had questions. And mm-hmm. uh, we've got two questions, which was not bad. I mean, the tweet only went up an hour or two ago. And one of our regular listeners and supporters, Andy Bonner, had asked um, about, I think you'd mentioned the the guys on the Tortoise Shack that we were having difficulty in tying down guests. And Andy was asking, do we believe that this is a fear in some guests of letting their side down or is he way off the mark? And he's looking forward to our return. Well, do you, do you want to kick that off, Sam? And what's your response to that? Um, it. Tying the guests down is basically just getting the gist of what we can discuss. One of our guests um, hosted another podcast and he's having to check what questions we're going to ask because of the company he works for, which is fine. So we, and it's partly our fault because we, we, we sort of, we, we wanted to talk to him and then we postponed it and we haven't got around to doing it again. That, that one's okay. There's another two who were sort of big names that we had lined up Um and then it went silent with them. And I think that's the two that we were sort of going with. And one of them would be in the launch of it. And because we couldn't tie them down, it sort of knocked it on us. So it's not a case of letting their side down. I don't know what what their issue is. They were sort of very keen to do it at the start. And then all of a sudden, it, it is radio silence. As far as the rest of the guests go, because we were looking for the kickoff, we didn't we didn't go with the other guests. So th- nobody is letting us down, Andy. Um there are people we talk to who aren't comfortable talking on air. Um, there are people who are willing to talk to us off air. Um, and again, it, that's that's one of the reasons we actually did this podcast in the beginning is because we were forever being told nobody tells our story. We always hear from the other side. Nobody tells our story. So we, we launched the podcast um, and we don't call people out for not doing it, but we give them an opportunity if they feel that this is a safer space and a more controlled space. In fact, we've had people on in the past who we have allowed to use a pseudonym because it protects their identity. And that, that will continue. Some people have a story to tell. And if we can, if we can tell that story and, and protect their personal life as, as well at the same time, then we'll do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting observation, you know, that Andy makes is there fear among guests of letting the side down I suppose well what we've encountered certainly is that people come onto the podcast largely they're not representing a side particularly okay everyone has their own agenda but I don't think there's any manufactured narrative that people come on with where they sort of feel like they have to stick to the, the gospel of their creed or whatever but um I think, as you say, Sam, I mean, we, we did have two, you know, big big hitters, sort of, I should say, you know, in, in football terms, marquee signings um, to, to, kick, to kick the season off. And, you know, for whatever reason, there's silence in that respect. Um, you know, I know one of, the, one of the individuals is quite busy at the moment, so that that's um, fair enough. And I'm sure we'll hear back from them at some stage. The other, I'm not too sure about, but... I'm confident, you know, we've we've got a list of guests. It's like the, um, again, to use a football analogy, you don't go into sort of pre-season without a transfer list. Um, you have a transfer list A, and then you have transfer list B. When the, when the initial targets maybe don't come about, you've got um, others in place, and they're still good quality, and people would have got to anyway. 
So, you know, it's not a case of um, second best. It's a case of getting the people we want to talk to, but maybe a bit sooner than we'd envisaged. Um, and then there was another question from Stephen McGill. And again, Stephen, thanks for the support. Um, he asks, would we do an in-profile segment for the podcast so each week take some time to tell us about a bit more about a specific combatant? For example, Trevor King, John Bingham, etc., etc., would be very interesting. What do you think? I suppose to answer that, that's not what our podcast's really about. It's not about looking at loyalist paramilitary history. We will look at that as part of the podcast, and that's why we had Ian Turner on, and we'll continue to talk to people um, who do that kind of historical research. But we're not here to sort of, um, well, from my perspective, certainly. We're not here to facilitate a hagiography of people who were involved in the conflict. We're here to have informed discussion. Um, certainly, I think knowing more about these people, more about their lives, would be advantageous to an overall better understanding of, of what happened here in the past. But I think we'll leave it to the historians such as Ian and other people who write in loyalism and republicanism if, if people want to talk about individuals from that uh, background and um, we'll leave it to the historians to come on and talk about that we're not here to give a pen pen pick of of people who were involved in the, the conflict no and i think i think we have had ex-loyalists on before we um eddie kenner was especially one of those um so we will we will encounter people who have been through the troubles and from a loyalist perspective who want to give their story and they're willing to come forward and talk about it um but I don't think I'm in a position, certainly, to do a biography on, on any of these names. And I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that and not doing justice to the families either behind behind them. Um, mm-hmm. If if one of the family members want to come forward and talk about them at some stage, it would be taken in the context of their lived experience on a wider, it would be their life and whatever effect it having such and such as a father and whatever came that way transfers across because that's what we do we, we, we let people tell their stories um and i don't i wouldn't feel comfortable doing doing that per se and as, as you said ian is probably the best guy for that um what what he does is, is very niche and very specific and he does it very well so will ian be on again i, I would i would dare say ian will be on again so we can certainly cover different subjects and topics at that point um but i, I wouldn't i wouldn't be just doing sort of snippets of people who who were involved with loyalist power and militaries just for that. That's not what this podcast is. There are other podcasts out there who will cover that. No, exactly. And I mean, the names mentioned there, Trevor King and John Bingham, you know, I think if we were talking about people like that and, and also similar uh, personalities on, on the Republican side, um, people who we've maybe heard about but don't know a lot about the texture of, 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 of who they were as people. I would certainly be open to talking to family members, as you quite rightly say, to get a sort of different perspective. Um, because one of the things I think we both agree on is that the vast majority of, of people who got involved in the conflict here, whether they be Republican or Loyalist or Security Force or whatever, uh, very few of them, actually, an uh, infinitesimal amount of them were psychopaths. So, you know, the vast majority were ordinary men and women. And to hear more about their, their day-to-day lives and how they came to make the decision to get involved in the conflict would be 
far more profitable in terms of moving society on, in my opinion. And, you know, that that really leads on to something I'd like to talk about. Um, you know, I've had an interesting couple of weeks. Um, you know, as you know, mother-in-law died a couple of weeks ago and we had the uh, sort of, you know, the the gathering after the funeral in, in the felons. Um, so it was interesting, obviously, being up there and, you know, it's the first time I'd actually been in the felons for some reason. I don't, I don't know why I'd never made it up there. I'd been to the PD a few times, but never been in the felons. And, you know, it was interesting seeing all the sort of Republican paraphernalia and the sort of expression of that that history and, and you know, the statue of Bobby Sands and, the you know, there's a portrait of Moira Drum on the stairway. Um, and, you know, look, I, I find it really interesting. And then... But that's not why I was there. It wasn't to sort of enjoy the, the, the surroundings, as it were. It was it was to mourn. But then, you know, a week later, I found myself on the Shankle. Um, probably more familiar surroundings for me, ironically. Um, but I was there in the um, Action for Community Transformation Initiative um, headquarters uh, for an event as part of the Shankle Fest, which we, well, myself and Bino took part in last year. Mm-hmm doing the Boots and Belts event. And this year, there was a really interesting event on in the ACT building called The Legacy Socratics. And it was basically Bino, Neblock, and ACT Initiative have done a series of four short films. And one of these films was being shown, and it was called Sadie Martha Brady. And basically, the actress who was Maureen Harkins was playing the role of a mother in the early 1970s whose husband had died and who was waiting for her son to come home after a night out. And she talks about how ambiguously she talks about how her son has gone on to um, go to university. He's gone on to mix with people from the other side. It's never stated what side that is. I think it's implied perhaps that it's, you know, a, a Protestant working class background. Um, but importantly, you know, we're talking about Sadie, Mar- Sadie Martha and Bridie here, not, not you know, Sadie or, or Bridie. Um, so, you know, it was interesting because the narrative is the, the lady talking about her son, waiting for her son to come home and, you know, not, not sort of go too much into depth about what, what the outcome is, but ultimately it's not a good one for, for, for the mother. And, you know, it, it built on a poem that Bino had done before about waiting for a son to come home, 1972. And Bino has talked about that experience, about how his mother would have come out. You know, she wouldn't have just sat in the house. She would have come out at night time to try and find him because she knew probably he was on the street corners with the Tartan gangs and ultimately, you know, the vigilantes. I think what what basically the framework around this film um, was the the guys William Mitchell, who's the coordinator of the Act Initiative, Doctor Mitchell, and Bino wanted to have a discussion about victims, and the question that was asked was: Is Sadie a victim, or is Bridie a victim, or is Martha a victim, and have they been forgotten? Um, has society done enough? to uh, look after victims and survivors since the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, They asked what can be done that hasn't been done. Um, Talked about 
the consultation in the past. We're hearing now about the Independent Commission for um, Reconciliation and Information Recovery. So there's a lot of questions, but the thing that I find really interesting about this whole event was that the discussion was being hosted and prompted by former Loyalist prisoners. To me, okay, there's a sort of uneasiness that I felt as well, because obviously there were people in that room who were responsible for creating victims, but also they were mature enough to have this discussion, to open up this discussion, to invite people into the shankle and talk about has enough been done for victims in, in the last 25, 30 years. And more specifically, the discussion went on to prisoners and a lot of the people in the room stood up and said they didn't see themselves as victims of the conflict. They saw their families as victims. They saw the victims, the people who'd been killed as, as primarily the victims, but also the families who'd been left behind um, when, when, the, when the young guys went into jail as victims, the mothers. And, you know, again, Sadie, Bridie, Martha, the women who were left behind to, to pick up the pieces. So it was, a, it was a night of two halves, really. I thought it was a really mature discussion. And it was one of these discussions that probably didn't get the coverage that it deserved, but it, it opened up a lot of interesting avenues for discussion, um, particularly given who who the people, the origins of the people who were hosting it. But the second half of the night was also really interesting, where there was a photographic exhibition of Long Cash, McGilligan, uh, the Maze, all all the different institutions where uh, loyalist prisoners had found themselves over the years. And and I overheard, well, I was part of an interesting conversation where one of the guys who'd, who'd been um, jailed was talking about the fear among loyalist ex-prisoners, some loyalist ex-prisoners of being outed as ex-prisoners, people who want to go on and sort of integrate into the community and don't want to talk about their past as, as loyalist ex-prisoners or loyalist combatants. And, and what, what the sort of unanimous understanding was on the night was that, look, there's no point in pretending because people know, people will find out eventually, you know, what your background is and, and you know, what you've done. That's, that was the feeling. So what they're trying to do now is take ownership of this and, and make it less of a sort of stigma. And I think I've been having thoughts about this over, over the past while, which is why I'm, why I'm rambling. But legacy is complicated we we'll have to think primarily of people who, who suffered and that is primarily the people who were left behind after their relatives were killed. But we we'll also have to think about people who, who became involved in the conflict, whether they be Republican, loyalist or, or security forces, what their motivations were and what the legacy is of their involvement in, in the, in the, in the, in the past. So really I left with more questions and answers, but I also I felt positive about the, the sort of conversations that are happening. I felt also a bit despondent because I think there should be more people listening to those conversations. But I think one of the observations that was made, and again, it comes back to one of the sort of driving forces for the origins of shrapnel. Um, the, an observation was made that, you know, people in this community, they're talking like the Shankill, complain that nobody ever listens to us and then you host an event like that and you maybe get 15 people 
and I made the, you know, playing devil's advocate, I made the comparison that if that was in the felons or the sort of uh, Conway Mill or the, the new James Conley Visitor Centre, you'd have a hell of a lot more people. There's more engagement with the history, with wanting to sort of produce a narrative around the past. So what what can be done to engage loyalists in that conversation? Because I think it was a mature conversation. It might not sit easily with people that, that it was former combatants that were starting the conversation about victims and defining victims and assessing whether Eames Bradley and the information retrieval processes and the victims disablement payment scheme has done enough for victims. But the fact that it's being done has to be congratulated. It does. And I've I've said before on the other podcast that I think we're 25 years down the line from the Good Friday Agreement and we're still only having conversations in, in sort of rooms about this. We haven't actually settled this. And it it's probably indicative of the situation at the time that it was too too hot to handle and they couldn't discuss it at the time. They couldn't put it in the, in the original text because it's such, such an expansive subject. And it's one of those subjects I don't really particularly feel comfortable getting into because... How do you define, define victims? And I think there should be people put in place who who know what they're doing. But we should also draw on, on maybe some of the experiences of, of other conflict zones around the world who have tackled this. I mean, I'm not saying the South African um, truth sort of search was, was the way forward. But we can learn from people's mistakes as well as learning from their positives. So if we look at each individual process that other conflict zones have put in place... And then work out where they went right and where they went wrong. And then hopefully we'll get right. But I think 25 years after the event, to be honest, the, the, the sort of pessimistic side of me thinks that they're hoping everybody dies out and it goes yeah. away. And I yeah. think that I think that's the case. The only thing is we, we now talk about intergenerational trauma. It's not going to die out. And that's the thing. It, it's going to be there. And the more that we sort of go on our cycle, our yearly cycle where we are, whether it be Easter Rising Parades, whether it be 12th of July Parades, whether it be anything. We always come around to centenaries and sort of markers and anniversaries. We keep going on this cycle and it sort of keeps everything just ambling along. It keeps that fire burning. Um, and these victims don't don't get a respite from it. And it comes around yearly. And I think... I think it's a, it's a good step forward that the Act, Act Initiative have taken. Uh, and I, I for one, would not applaud. Um, I would encourage ex-combatants to come forward and talk about victims because they're taking ownership of it and they recognise that, um, that they've, they've had a part to play in all this and they're not ignoring it, which is um, great. Um, so I, I would I would hope people, after the initial who, who are they that to talk about victims, would reckon, sort of recognise that they... They've taken a step here and they're moving in the right direction. Hopefully the rest of of the sort of the governments and the bodies that are coming in behind them sort of acknowledge that, that the work has been done. Again, the work has been done at community level before it's done at government level. We're, we're, we're driving the wrong way here. The tail's always wagging the dog in this country. Um, the same went for the peace process. If it wasn't for peace marches and, and women's coalition marches, we wouldn't have got off the ground. So... Again, we're back to that where where the community is driving it forward, and I think I think that's the positive way. I mean, I'm sorry to miss it, but uh, a friend of ours did send me a, a sort of email containing all the photographs, and it was a hell of a trip down memory lane. Let me tell you, it was just seeing some of the faces and some of the the, the places. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and as much as it was nostalgic, it was also a stark reminder of where this goes if we don't get it right. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, it, it was it was certainly a, a great initiative that they put together, and the actor to be applauded again for what they've done. Yeah, and I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it it has been a sort of um, strange few weeks for me. You know, you know, going from the felons to the act initiative, but I'd like to come sort of back to even before the felons were. I was in the uh, Senate chamber in the Assembly, um, Parliament Buildings, apologies, for an event which was hosted by South East Fermanagh Foundation, and it was in memory of the father of our good friend, Paul Wilson, um, Paddy Wilson, who was murdered by the Ulster Freedom Fighters um, 50 years ago um, at the end of June 1973, so um, Paddy Wilson, obviously, and Ari Andrews were brutally murdered by John White and Associates. Um, and again, that's that's why it was a very emotional event. Paul's a good friend of ours, and it was good good to meet him face to face. Finally, I had a good chat with one of our other friends, uh, Father Martin McGill, who told me off for calling him Father over and over again. <laughs> He told me to call him Martin, and he he did promise that he would come on the podcast. So that's a, that's a scoop here. Um, but you know, the, the, to go from that event where it was very much perpetrators are wrong to an event hosted by perpetrators talking about those very victims and the way they've been treated, to me shows the complexities of of this place we we call home. Um, and again, you know, I, I see, I mean, that's what I say, Seth and, and Paul, their, um, viewpoint is from lived experience as well. They're, they're victims and we have to be sensitive of that and mindful of that and understand where, where Paul's coming from. Paul's shared his life story with us and we, I mean, listening to his life story is demonstrable evidence of how a killing a killing 50 years ago can affect a whole family um and 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 the outcomes for that family um but i think we do need to get to a stage where we can have those truly uncomfortable conversations where we do include people who were involved in the violence if they're sincere and they want to get involved in having these discussions then we should facilitate it because the more bogeymen we create the more easy it allows us to happen in the future. I think it's, it's about bringing people in and making them part of the conversation. So what you say there about intergenerational trauma, we've seen that in, in Paul's life. And I think that is one of the, there's no easy fix to it. We can't sort of just, I mean, there's a lot of experts who are working on intergenerational trauma at the moment. It's being recognised as a as a real thing now. Um, we can't sort of solve it overnight, but it is one of the main obstacles, I think, to find a peaceful settlement here. Because although the NIO, for example, or, or whoever may wish for people to die out and for these stories to disappear with them, it won't happen. Because intergenerational trauma means that these stories will be carried forward and people will keep campaigning and sharing the stories of their loved ones and their loved ones and their grandfathers, grandmothers, great-grandfathers. Um, 
it's part of our oral history and our, our folk memory. So it's not going to go away overnight. So we'll have to find a way of reconciling it with, with the present and the future. Now, again, I don't have a, a fix for that, but I also certainly know, you know, I, I attended a really interesting conversation um, a few months ago when I worked in the executive office. Um, and it was the French Forensic Managed Care Network in Northern Ireland, which is run by one of the health trusts. And the presenter there was talking about intergenerational trauma and um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder among clients with um, forensic histories. Now, in layman's terms, that means CPTSD among former combatants. And uh, the guy who was presenting had a case study about a former loyalist combatant, as he, as he called in, in the presentation, who had got involved in the loyalist paramilitaries in the early 70s. And he brought this guy's whole forensic history through involvement in the paramilitaries right up to his present situation where he's estranged from his daughters due to alcoholism, which was a product of PTSD. And this is because this guy can't come to terms with what he was involved in in the 1970s. To me, that clearly marks him out as a victim. He might have also been a victim maker, but it shows that the sort of terrain is more complex than we often give it credit for. So I think we need to look at this in a holistic way. But again, I also understand why someone listening to this might say, why the hell should a guy who decided to become involved in violence be regarded as a victim? That's an affront to victims. So we'll have to be mindful of all these things. But do you have a solution for it, Sam? No, no, I do not. It's one of those conversations. It's complex and it's extremely uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I, and I can I can empathize with them because it is it's what it truly is and you go down the line of you're trying to put in the black and white on a page somewhere what a victim is how can you, we can't do that you know I mean every every life lived or lost and every experience had needs to be taken on its own merit and we need to look at how people I mean, Billy Mitchell had a, a great excerpt in one of the books about we didn't become murderers overnight. A yeah. plane didn't fly over this place and, and cover us in, in, in some sort of chemical that made us murderers. It, it was, a, as he was suggesting, he was a product of the, the environment that it, it was being produced around him. Um, and I think there are many, as you said, there there, was a, there are one or two names you could pull out of the hat and say they would have killed anyway, whether there's troubles or not. They, yeah. they were psychotic. But there was genuine people out there who got sucked into a, a conflict that normally they wouldn't have got involved in and, and ended up doing some horrific things. Um, and then living a life afterwards where they they were haunted by it. And it it, it is uncomfortable for, for those, I'm going to use the term truly innocent people who had nothing, no dog in this fight as such, who were then impacted by the troubles to hear that. But it did happen, unfortunately. Uh, and then that impacted on, on the children. Um, we created victims and then we created second tier victims and third, not second tier, second generation victims and then third generation victims. And we, and we keep going to this day, um, passing, passing that trauma on. Um, and as much as, as much as it, it's going to hurt pulling that plaster off and having a look at the wound underneath, we need to do it to heal it. We need to have a look and see what we're, we're dealing with. And we need to be able to have a conversation 
Um, and it's going to be a heated conversation. It's going to be a, a, a conversation full of emo- raw emotion that we need to have. But yeah, as I said, it should have been done in 98. I think we jumped the gun by quite a bit by getting to where we were. We, we And I, I know people will throw pelters at me for this one, but we released prisoners way before we, we dealt with victims. Yeah, And that's maybe something we needed to do. Um, but again, if you listen to the narrative that went out, prisoner release was one of those points that people weren't going to give up and until they had prisoner release they weren't going to sign up to any agreement so I reckon the governments went with it just to get it over the line um, and did it stop other victims being created Jesus the, the, the circles we could go in here the, the butterfly effect mm-hmm. I mean had we not signed it back then to deal with legacy first would we have created more issues for the legacy to deal with or I mean I suppose I suppose 98 can be seen as the breathing space that we needed to try and move on. And there are plenty of commentators, commentators out there who are pointing out the pitfalls and where we are, where we should be and what we got wrong. At that point in time, I, I remember quite clearly, it was quite, it was quite release valve, um, the let pressure off this place. And there was some euphoria at the beginning and we all sort of, we all basked in the sunlight of the thing that we created for a while. And it's further down the line that we realised that we hadn't quite, get everything in place. But I also believe that that's because we we changed the system so much. We, we excluded the smaller parties who were instrumental in what, what we achieved. Uh, and we created a political system that was doomed to go round in circles, um, whether it be collapsing up, collapsing up, or whether it be infighting or, or what, we, what we have done is marginalised. And we also marginalised the two parties that um, drove this to the two we'll call them the big parties that that drove this the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists but marginalised those so the guys who who done a lot of groundwork and then the smaller parties who who supported them as foundations have all but sort of disappeared and we're now left with two parties who one at the time wasn't involved at all and were anti agreement and the other one were barely in the room um and only were in the room to get what they wanted and this is where we are because of that. Yeah, it's um, circular, isn't it? Like everything here. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is. We 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 live in in cycles. Um, and we, I mean, the, the, what they talk about the fashion comes keeps coming around. Yeah, and yeah. We we have that, but it's, it's usually trauma or traumatizing, one of the two. But we're we're getting very dark and gloomy for for our first return sort of chat. Well, that's that's what our uh, that's what our thing is, isn't it? Isn't it? We're dark and gloomy, and <laughs> but that's. I mean, I think that's. What we've talked about, you know, I think people up here get that. I think people outside this little part of Ireland that we call home maybe don't get it. Um, you know, they wonder why it is so dark and gloomy, but it's it's the nature of the beast. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. I think I spoke last week about something similar when when Tony and Martin were talking about the, the Dublin perspective on this place and in the round of twelfth that that was a subject that they were on, but it's in there around most things. Unless you've lived here, unless you've lived through it and you have that experience of it, you truly can't understand it. I mean, there there is an argument, I suppose, that maybe they're they're in the best position. Those people who haven't lived through this, whether it be in, in the South or the mainland or European, to come in with fresh eyes and try and make it forward. Maybe, maybe we're too damaged to, to, to look at this. In a, in a perspective way that we, we can move forward with it. But on the other hand, to come in and tell us how we feel about it. I mean, Shauna Grant um, was pointing out that somebody in the, uh, in the South has said that they had lived through the troubles and was trying to basically talk down to her. Jesus, 
I mean, don't teach your granny how to suck eggs. You know, yeah. we 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 have we have been here. We we have done the the hard work. We have seen the sights that you'll never see. Um, so there is there is an argument for people coming coming to Northern Ireland and giving us their perspective. We'll listen to you. Yeah, but don't try and enforce it on us. I mean, there is a a, a paper article out today that a lot of people are commenting on about a certain individual who hates the 12th. Mm-hmm. Again, it's another Southerner coming in to tell us why they hate the 12th. Yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah, we, we don't need that. What we need to do is heal up here and talk. I mean, I certainly had a productive conversation with, with Shauna last week and we, we continue to do that. And I think, I think we're, we're more productive talking to each other than inviting others from the outside to come in and stir the pot. Well, the article you mentioned, I mean, I, I mean, look, Again, to play devil's advocate here, I think it's completely legitimate. I think it's legitimate criticism from Andre Murphy, and I get where she's coming from. Look, I understand it. It's it's um, it 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 is intimidating to an outsider. Um, there is a sense that the excesses of of some of the bonfires are, you know, the well, the excesses are hatred. You know, we, we've seen those displays at bonfires. But we also understand here, if we're if we're generous enough to admit it, that that hatred can work both ways. But also, what my, you know, I think it's a legitimate article and it's playing to a certain audience. But the the problem I have is the analogy with the Ku Klux Klan and the Southern states of America, because no matter how much we try and and sort of. Through um, wedge in these these analogies, to me that don't work because what the um, African American community suffered and still continue to suffer in some of the states of America is beyond comprehension for us as as a sort of uh, population of relatively what is it privileged white people. I mean, okay, um, ultimately. I understand the knee-jerk reaction why why you know bonfires. The analogy can be made with the burning crosses on the lawn. This idea of hatred of a of a group of an ethnic group. I understand it because I mean I I've, I've been at the sharp end of that. I've suffered sectarianism for 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 my background. Um, I I I know how it works, but I've also witnessed sectarianism from people from my background. Um, okay, it's not as visceral. It's not as out there as maybe the bonfires, but it still exists. And it's still a cancer that we need to root out and and get rid of. And while I think the article is legitimate, I don't think it moves us on any. Say, coming out and saying, I hate the 12th of July. Okay, that's fair enough. But where does it move us on? And if you're talking about a new Ireland or a shared island, and the more things move on, We've had this conversation, Sam. Sometimes I think it might be something we need to look at and we need to sort of reimagine how we, we coexist in this place. Stuff like that isn't going to get us any further. We need to sort of sit down and try and understand. Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna try and understand people who espouse hatred, right? Because um we see we see them for what they are, okay? There's some people that are never gonna change their minds. But coming out and say saying that you hate the 12th of July and making analogies with southern states of, of America and, and the sort of um, images that that conjures of, of people, be, of, of African-Americans being lynched and discriminated against. 
And also, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it now. Um, some loyalists who are now using that um analogy off the back of the bus, like Rosa Parks, I think it's abhorrent. You know, don't use those metaphors because they don't match up with what we experience here as a society, and what certainly not we're, what we're experiencing in the year 2023. No, and I, I think we have enough trauma enough baggage without owning somebody else's is, is one thing we, we shouldn't be going looking to see where else we could be traumatized by yeah um on on the other side if if we're we're talking about a united ireland or at least a more what i would hope for a more sort of beneficial relationship between two countries two separate countries i know people out there would be going Whoa! but that 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 i'm loyalist i mean that's that's where yeah. my my allegiance lie um but I do think we could get on better with our neighbours and if our neighbours street to street, our neighbours town to town, our neighbours country to country, we could be doing a lot better. Um, and I also know that this certain article that has been printed didn't need to be printed. So the media have a, an answer to give here as well. Why they continually put bile out uh, and get, to get people up. Is there not enough other stories going on at the minute? Um, is there not bigger stories going on at the minute? Um, I again, I see another report during the week about food bank usage here. Um, about parents already fretting about back to school. Um, where they're getting the money from? They've been budgeting from Christmas apparently, according to one report, to try and afford school uniforms for next year. There are so many things that we need to tackle. Um, Shauna brought up about the the removal of funding for a book per child, just to at least have one yep. book in the house. Yep. Well, there's so many challenges, but here we are. We're now on the 16th of July, and we're still talking about the 12th. Um, yeah, and I mean, uh, what the, uh, if I interject there, I mean, I suppose in defence of, of the article, it is an opinion piece, and, you know, there's always going to be opinion pieces. Um, and, you know, it, again, it's completely legitimate. It plays to a certain audience. It reinforces um, some perceptions that exist already. Um, but... You know, I think I'm I'm not going to go down the route of playing the the man. I'm going to play the ball. So you know, I think what what I don't like is when somebody like Andre writes write, writes an article like that. Okay, and people go into sort of her insults and sort of you know mm-hmm. talking about this, that, and the other. It's not relevant. Um, engage with the argument. Engage with what she's saying. And to me, the first line I hit the twelfth of July. Um, and and also about the lack of understanding about the conflict in the north, and this that and the other before she came here in nineteen ninety four. To me, speaks volumes about what we're the challenge we face when we're engaging with our neighbours in the south. And 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 what I'm not saying everybody in the south, but a lot of the perceptions in the south, even to this day, are distorted and and not really informed by the lived experience of people in in this place. Yeah, and I, and I won't say that the the, the the paper we published it are biased because they also publish opinion pieces from people of my community, I'll call them. Absolutely, and, and, yeah. and they're they're quite vitriolic as well. You know, it, it just seems to be that you know yourself, it sells. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 I mean, they don't want people to come on and say, you know what, I, I'm a Protestant, but I have no problem with. People drinking in the felons, they're lovely people. They don't want that. That doesn't sell papers, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, although, going back to the felons, I've been in the felons twice, so I love more them. Than me. Yeah, more than you. I mean, this is this is wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. And again, that 
I've been in the Valence twice. Yeah. I'm, I'm still here. Um, and today I'm hoking about here with Claire Mitchell on Twitter trying to get an invite. She said, told me the event's free for the failure. I'm sort of hoping to be on the stage. Um, but well, we'll see. Well, <laughs> we'll I mean, see. You, I mean, you are an alternative Protestant, Sam. Uh, well, yeah, I am. Um, I, I don't... I don't hold the views that a lot of my community do, but on the other hand, I am from my community. So if they want to come and chat with me, I'm willing to chat. Um, and I have no no problem. The same as I went to uh, Ballymun to speak mm-hmm. to to people. Um, I'm hoping to maybe make the Sugar Club this week. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no guarantees, but I'll, I'll go down. I mean, because I don't see the point of talking to you, preaching to the choir. I don't yeah. see that. I, I want to talk to those who haven't heard our voices. Um, and this podcast is, is, is a major thing on that. Um, but I want people to see what what life that I had from growing up in the place that I did and, and that it, it wasn't all I hate Catholics because it didn't. Uh, and that was never sort of taught to me. Uh, it, it was... It, <sighs> It, it it was a lived experience that gave me a great sense of community growing up where I did uh, and the background that I had. Um, and I want people to, from my community to be able to tell their stories. Uh, but I also want everybody affected by what we call the troubles, Jesus, an understatement, hmm. um, to come forward and and be able to give us their lived experience. And we will give a voice to, to anybody who wants to, to be honest. Yeah, and it will be gloomy, it will be depressing, it'll be uncomfortable, it'll make people squirm in their sheets, it'll, you know, make people uh, feel uneasy, but it'll make people think. Yeah. And that's what we want. And if it gets people talking in a good way, in a positive way, in an engaging way, that's what Shrapnel is here to do. It's here to have a seeing conversation. Um, we We come from sort of different backgrounds will not labour the point but you know we're here to facilitate conversations across the board and you know that's what we're going to try and do in series two and yeah. and beyond and I think that's maybe a good place to sort of wind up this one-off episode and I think in the future as things progress I think we're going to do more of these episodes to keep things ticking along yeah uh, but we'll we'll still have our narratives um, and lived experiences as the sort of meat and potatoes of what shrapnel's all about. I think we talked about a, a sort of a mini podcast to sort of fill gaps in weeks because things move up here so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a structure to our podcast and our guests are, are we, we talk to them beforehand, we discuss subject matter and what we're going to cover because some of our, so our guests could cover 20, 30 years worth of stuff and you can't do that in an hour. It's not in a fun fire. So we do it in we do it in a sort of more sort of focused way. But we talked about doing something that was more ad hoc, that we could react to the weeks going on uh, and inviting guests on. So the idea of the questions, um, people putting questions to us, yeah, I think we'll keep that because that will help with the ad hoc stuff. Yeah. Um, we do we do have a name, but we'll not release the name just quite yet in case anybody else pinches it on us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, How, d- how do, dare they? Yeah. But I also think we'll maybe do a, maybe a 10-minute live segment with, with somebody or a 10-minute recorded segment with somebody um, for a quick sort of 
quick take, hot take if you want on whatever the subject matter is that week. So whether it be Storm Out's up and running and decide to ban popcorn in cinemas, we'll, we'll certainly go and talk to somebody or, or whether Storm Out's down and the Secretary of State wants to enforce um, national service at the age of 16. We'll, we will get people on to talk about for 10 minutes and we'll do a quick sort of snippet during so, the weeks. Sam, popcorn being banned in cinemas would be my Rubicon where I would take up arms. Finally, that would be that would be my origin. You know, sort of thirty years from now, that could be <laughs> the the thing that um, pushed me over the edge. That's it. Ban ban on the popcorn is, is a way to get another couple of votes there for United Ireland. Is that, is that the way it's <laughs> going to go here? Um, everybody has their trigger points, I suppose. Um, mine would be coddle being supplied in the north. That coddle just can't have that. Yeah, well, so. we need to have a hard border for coddle. Yeah, yeah, they should be round, sort of. I don't know, part of Dublin because it seems to be just round about where Tony lives. Will do. Um, yeah, it's we're, we're, we've got plans. We've, we know what we're going to do now that we've sort of had the silent treatment from our our marquee signings, as you say. We'll we'll, we'll go we'll go to the bread and butter. We'll, we'll go to the guys who actually make the pod what it is. It's nice to have a big name to sort of kick it off and everybody gets excited. But you know what? These other guys that we have on this list have stories to tell that yeah and subjects to cover that will just keep this 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 buzz going because they're lived and they they feel them and they, they have the emotion behind them yeah uh, let's, let's just go do what we do and record these things 